The word of God from Mark. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came and to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And he said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to the heaven, up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you bless our time this morning as we explore your word? Would you um, help us to really give ourselves fully to your word? Let it transform us. We seek to know you. Uh, We seek to know you and follow you and love you. And I just pray that your spirit would fill the space in these moments so that would happen. We love you and um, make us ready, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, If you're new, my name's Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at Denver Prez. And if you're new, uh, you're catching us right in the middle of a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And really our heart behind this sermon series is getting to know Jesus for who he truly is, like front row seats. We want to know him. So, so far, we've seen Jesus call disciples to himself. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him uh, perform miracles. And now we're going to see this event that is really going to give us insight to what is so close to the heart of God. Uh, let me begin with an illustration that's going to help us understand what's at stake here. Uh, you guys ever seen the movie to- Toy Story, the Pixar film? Of course you have. So there's this sort of, in, in the, the original, there's this crisis building scene where um, the whole family, Andy and his mom, are, they're in a car, and Buzz Lightyear and Woody are in the back. And at one point, uh, they stop at a gas station, and the two of them go inside. And, you know, when the humans leave, the toys come to life. So, like, Buzz Lightyear and, uh, and Woody, are, they start having this fight. There's kind of a jealousy for, like, Andy's affection and so forth. They're wrestling, and they fall out of an open window. Then Andy's mom come back in, get in a car, and they drive off. And there's this moment where Woody, 
right? He's Andy's favorite toy. He realizes what, what's happening, and he starts to panic. And he's like, they're coming back for me. They're coming back for me. And then he realizes, oh, no, they're not coming back for me. Now, in that sort of cinematic universe, there is this category, the lost toy category. And lost toys, I mean, that is the stuff that like, nightmares are made of. The lostness is so, you could just feel it in that moment. Now listen, that movie is probably not even an hour and a half long, and it made $350 million and counting. How? How did this cartoon do so well? Here's the answer. It appeals to everyone, to include adults. And they're like subtexts and plot lines that adults are even picking up on. It did so well primarily because all of these categories touch on something that is true, true for everyone. See, we watch this movie and we can relate and see ourselves in the panic and in the lostness of Woody. There's that sense of lostness. That's the feeling that Jesus is going to address today. So we're studying this extremely famous story. And just spoiler alert, the feeding of the 5,000 is not about sharing your lunch, all right? That's not what the story is about. It's about Jesus's compassion for the lost and his willingness and ability to feed us a deep feeding of sorts. So the compassion of Jesus is going to be illustrated in his willingness to feed deeper, to holistically feed us. And we're going to see this in two ways for you note takers, two-point sermon today. We're going to see Jesus feed their hearts, and then we're going to see Jesus feed their bellies. So let's begin with how Jesus feeds their hearts. Now this story that we read, the feeding of the 5,000, it's the only miracle that's actually listed in all four of the Gospels in your New Testament. Clearly, this is a story that stayed for a long time in the imagination of the Gospel writers. And it was because it really helped them to see Jesus' heart. Now, when you read all four of the different stories, they all have their different angles or emphases. What Mark is doing is he's telling this story in reference to an Old Testament text, specifically Ezekiel 34. So if you don't know much about Ezekiel 34, the prophet is speaking against the shepherds or the leaders of Israel. He is saying that these leaders, these shepherds have completely abandoned the flock and now the flock is being plundered. And if you follow it, the prophet goes on to say, but the Lord God himself will become their shepherd. And so there, in Ezekiel 34, there is this sheep-shepherd motif. And what we see is are there are these sheep without anyone to care for them, all right? So fast forward with Jesus. He looks upon this particular group who's like running around the lake trying to keep up wherever the boat lands so that they'd be there for him. He sees this mass and he sees them in that light. That's his framework. He's seeing a people who do not have a leader. Now, let me help you get your brain around this for context. In the ancient world, how did you know who your leader was? Like, how did you know who to follow or who you were serving? Uh, back then, there's no sense of, like, nationality or patriotism. Certainly not the way that we think of it today. There weren't, like, any 
like fixed national mantras. There's no July 4th. There's no like World Cup team that you could follow that would kind of give you a sense of self. There's no like um, bathing suits with your flags on them or anything like that. There weren't even borders, right? So how do you know who you serve? Well, it's simple. You served the person you know could protect you. And as a consequence of that protection, you pay taxes to that person. That's the one who's in charge of you. That's the person who led you or was supposed to. And the people who, does, who did not have that protection, they were constantly in peril. So if you lived in this sort of unincorporated area, that was extremely dangerous. This is a big deal because, again, there's no borders that would protect pirates or oncoming armies. People would get plundered. People would get taken advantage of if they did not know their leader and if their leader didn't do their job. It's a big deal. And you have to remember that back then, people's sense of themselves was so different than like modern people. There was absolutely no sense that there was an autonomous self or just being alone. No one were like, hey, I'm just creating my own path in this life, right? I'm just going to be my own man. Like, that was not a thing that people used, thought about or had a category for in the ancient world. Attachment to a community that had leaders was the only way anyone did life in the ancient world. So this was very serious for them. I want y'all to feel the stakes. Mark is now telling of this people who are like running around the lake trying to keep up with Jesus. And he looks at them, this mass is sitting on this, you know, this, in this desolate area. And he says, verse 34, they are sheep without a shepherd. You feel the peril? Now, why did Jesus see them that way? Well, let's think about this. Who were their leaders? There's kind of three tiers of leaders. You had Herod. So Herod was like appointed by Rome. He was their king. He was the, a despot, really. He's bloodthirsty, awful dude. Second tier, you had the Sadducees. Uh, they're in bed with Rome. They've actually lost fidelity to the God of Israel. And then you had the like sort of local leaders, the Pharisees. And these are guys who are like imposing these massive extra biblical moral burdens on people. They're awful. Three sets of leaders, awful. And Jesus is looking at these people and he thinks they're in danger. There's a lostness. They don't have leadership. And so he immediately reacts. Verse 34, it says what? He had compassion. They're lost, but his immediate feeling is one of compassion. Now, compassion is deeper than empathy, right? Empathy is like uh, feeling someone's sadness, carrying their sadness with them. But compassion is empathy, but it's wedded to action. It is inseparably tied to a desire to do something about it, to help. So Jesus' compassion leads him to act. And how does he act? He acts by feeding them. But initially, he feeds them not with bread and fish. He, does something, he, he feeds them with something more profound. It says, verse 34, he begins to teach them. The banquet begins with the feast of teaching. So follow this. He sees that they're lost, and he begins to teach them what's going on there. What is he doing? What this is doing is it's showing us 
how Jesus perceives their lostness. It shows us the content or the meaning of their lostness. And it also shows us what Jesus believed about what he had to offer or speak into his lostness. Now, if you've been following the first six chapters of Mark, or really just familiar with the teachings of Jesus, there's a theme that comes out every single time Jesus opens his mouth and teaches. It's always the nature and the reality of the kingdom of God. That's what you get every time. That is the primary content of his teaching. That is God's reign on earth. Or maybe you could put it like this. It's the relationship of the creator with the creation. So what Mark is showing us, is doing, he's showing us what Jesus Christ thinks you need in your lostness. And his response to that is the kingdom of God. So let me kind of follow me a little bit more with this. Let me tease this out for us theologically. In Jesus' understanding of lostness, what that is is to live life without reference to the creator or without orienting your life to the creator. So to be lost is to understand life without reference to the maker, to the designer, which is to say that the world will ultimately be disorienting to you or it will ultimately be absurd to you if you do not interact with it on the terms of the one who made life. So if you don't understand that God made you and that he made all things with a very specific design and purpose, you will be like a person who uses his or her car like a plane, right? It's just not going to work out for you. Why? Because that's just not what it was made for. It doesn't mean that you can't get the car airborne. You can, but it's not going to work out for you because you're not living according to reality, right? So we, gotta, we must be oriented to God's reality and his purpose and design. That is, in essence, true kingdom living. So the, the, now this, this way of thinking about it isn't just describing us individually, but it also speaks to us collectively. So let me like take you through this, even with the people of God in the Old Testament. Think about Genesis chapter 12. This is the Abrahamic covenant. God says to Abraham, he says, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I am going to bless you that you may be a blessing. So literally, the very first interaction that the people of God have with him, he's giving them a purpose. He's giving them a design. Fast forward Exodus 19, same thing, on the mountain. God says, you shall be to me a holy nation, a royal priesthood. In other words, you have a purpose. You are not a self-licking ice cream cone. Y'all know I like to use that metaphor. In other words, you don't exist for yourself. You are designed for a purpose. You are to mediate God's blessing to everyone, to the whole world. That's what you're about. So now, people of God, fast forward Jesus' time. With Jesus, we see that the Jews have been living without proper orientation to that purpose. They don't have leaders leading them this way. They, they don't see their creator as the one who made them and called them. And what does Jesus do when he sees this scenario, when he looks upon the masses? He has compassion. He feels love. 
He knows that they need a true shepherd and a leader, one that would lead them in that purpose, the calling that God has called them. Living into your design individually and collectively is absolutely necessary. If you live in a world that does not reflect that reality, you will become disoriented and things will seem absurd to you. The world won't make sense. I mean, could you imagine my first day in Denver about a year ago or so if I arrived to the city with a map of San Juan? Like, is that going to help me? No, like it's useless. It's absurd even to use it. I mean, I know there's, there's streets and the green is land and the blue is water, but that's about all the continuity you have. Listen, sometimes... I think about this a lot. Sometimes I think we think about our faith or our religion, this thing that we're doing as this moment where we can all like, it's all just prepping us so that we can feel comfortable at funerals. Or maybe what we're doing here is we're just trying to make everyone good little boys or good little girls. And that's what we've reduced this all to. It's so much more than that. Jesus is actually offering us a map to reality. And this map helps us to navigate life, to interpret it in such a way that not only shows us real, true reality, but it actually leads us into flourishing and glory and a flourishing for the other. Think about it. Listen, if God, if the God of the universe entered into space and time, and if he did so to reconcile all things back to himself and put the creation back in proper relationship with the creator, if that is true, If that is true, then that is the map by which we have to understand our lives, what we're doing on this earth. And there can be nothing else that will actually make sense of our life. It's the only map that will guide us. Trusting in that cornerstone is tantamount to living into the kingdom of God. That's what we mean. Living outside of the kingdom of God is going to leave you with a sense of lostness. You'll just feel lost. What are we even doing here? And and in that lostness, at best, what we do is we sort of try to manufacture a meaning. Like, we don't have any meaning, so we got to manufacture meaning so that we can hide the otherwise absurd realities to this life. Like, there's an absurdity to this whole thing. I feel like our teenagers are the only ones that are being honest about this, or, and maybe Nietzsche. But like, they're the ones who are like, yeah, Life's absurd. Look at the news. It's not just sad. It's absurd. Right? And it doesn't matter how much makeup you put on the thing in the way of pleasures, and how much makeup you put in order to cover up the absurdity of this life. Our teenagers, Nietzsche, are right. If indeed there is no eternal God or eternal kingdom, they're just right no matter how many local meanings you try to manufacture. But living into the kingdom of God is what you are designed for. It gives us a purpose. It orients us. It gives us meaning. And it's found in service to that story. God's purpose for rescuing us out of darkness and into fellowship with him is to set us free to be human. Like, that's what, he, that's what he's doing. He's setting us up to be, to be human, what we were designed for. Discovering our true purpose, the reality of who we're meant to become and who we're meant to be, comes by way of our relationship to the king. 
as we live in his kingdom. We can't live outside of God's purpose any more than a car can become a plane. You can get it airborne, but it's not going to work out for you. Now, this begs a really important question, and it's this. If we're Christians, and we know this, why is it Christians feel lost? It's not just people out there. It's why do we sometimes feel lost? Can I frame that question a little bit different? Let me ask it this way. Why do non-Christians see Christians as hypocrites? Does that sound like a different question? It's not. Let me, let me tell you why. There are these areas in our lives that we are not living into this understanding of the kingdom of God. And in those areas where Jesus isn't reigning, life is disorienting, and we feel this lostness, right? It's in those ruptures, it's in those disorientations that these hypocrisies start to sneak in, right? Sin sneaks in. And and, and let me say this, the things causing the lostness oftentimes even feel acceptable in the church, can I, can I just like, there's so many um, acceptable sins in the church. You could do a whole sermon series on this. Let me just do one uh, that I think maybe all of us are a victim of. Cynicism. Cynicism is like seemingly innocuous. And, and we'll, we kind of couch it by saying, what, pastor, I'm just being realistic, right? You, you say, listen, uh, I know what you're saying, but I know what you're really thinking. I know what you're saying, but I know what's really going on here. I actually understand the world in a way that no one else can, and I can see through everything. I can see through everything. What is cynicism at its root? It is a mask for our desire for omniscience, all-knowing, to be all-knowing. We think that we understand the world or what's behind everything, And that's how come we're cynical and feel justified in our cynicism. But let me just tell you, that's not reality. You don't know what you think you know. No one does. Listen, we're Christians, you guys. Like, we're Christians. Cynicism should not be the ethos of the church. We're supposed to believe that God knows all things. We're supposed to believe that God is working all things for good, even really sad things. And yet... We're so negative about the world and we're so negative about the people around us because we know. We know what's behind everything, right? We know. Cynicism is a kind of toxic pessimism that at its root is a faithless act. What we're saying is that God is not in control of my life. And when we Christians have these ruptures in our vision of the kingdom of God, that's in those moments the hypocrisies settle in. They slip in, and everyone sees them. We see them. Our non-believing neighbors see them. I think we should just own it, say we're sorry, we're wrong, instead of trying to defend ourselves. And it produces a kind of lostness. We're Christians, but we're lost, just like our our non-Christian neighbors. That is what actually makes sense of Jesus' reaction. He sees the masses He says that they're lost, that they're not living in right relationship with the maker, and he feeds them first by teaching this unbreakable hope in the kingdom of God. It's really interesting because in the gospel of John, 
Jesus is going to come right out and say it. He's going to say, I, by the way, I am the good shepherd. He just comes right out and says it. He goes, you know, Ezekiel 34? Yeah, that's me. Where God becomes a shepherd, that's me. I will feed you with compassionate words of life. Life, a deep feeding can be found in these words, this map of Christ. All right, so let me transition now because what comes next is the part that everyone knows and remembers about this passage. So Jesus first gives them this banquet with his teaching, because, but, uh, but because the hour was growing late, uh, he's clearly teaching for a while. People, He has a captive audience. The disciples are like, verse 35, he says, J.C., it's kind of a desolate place. Let the people go. Give them a break so they can go out and find their own food. So Jesus says, verse 37, whoa, why don't you feed them? Now, the subtext of the reaction of the disciples is something like this. Are you kidding me? Really? Really? Is this a test? So verse 38, Jesus says, well, tell me what you have. They say, well, five loaves, two fish. Now, what's happening here? What's happening is Jesus is saying, I'm not done feeding them. I fed them, and now I'm going to feed them. I fed their minds, I fed their souls, but now I'm going to feed their bellies. Now, this point has incredible theological import. Listen, in like sort of modern Western Christianity, generally speaking, we have never truly experienced true hunger, not in any persistent sense. We tend to like spiritualize everything, and we underappreciate physical realities. Uh, There's a kind of um, overlooking of our care of our physical selves uh, when we purport to be caring for our spiritual selves. And so we can like, there's this tendency to even over-spiritualize this text. Like you can say, well, you know, if if the crowd was really grasping what Jesus was saying, it would have been so nourishing to the crowd that they wouldn't even thought about food, right? Just like you guys aren't thinking about lunch, right? Because I'm so captivating. <laughs> or if you're like at an all-night uh, prayer vigil and you get sleepy and you fall asleep, you're like, well, clearly they weren't having connection with God. They fell asleep. Like, really? Can you hear the kind of ways that we over-spiritualize things? That's not the world that Jesus lives in. That's not how he thinks. And they understood hunger. They, were perpetu- they perpetually lived in food insecurity just based on the weather. But as moderns, we have this impulse to divorce our physical selves from our spiritual selves. Now, some of you have probably might have even been raised in certain strands of like Christian fundamentalism uh, where you were taught something like this. Like you were taught that, hey, one day we're all just going to get whisked out of our bodies. Like our clothes are going to be sitting there on the ground or something or in the front seat of the cockpit or something. Okay, anyway. But, uh, and you're going to be whisked out. And so really, do I really need to care for this physical body or the world around me? Do I need to care about the environment? Because it's all going to burn, right? Who cares? Or I'm going to one day just be living in heaven, which is like, the clouds somewhere in far outer space as a disembodied ghost-like form in an angelic state. I'm just going to be leaving this world behind. I mean, does the physical really matter? Um, some of y'all were reared in a Christian tradition that kind of 
implied that, taught that. It's, it's kind of a weird uh, modern Gnosticism, actually. Truth be told, Christians aren't the only ones who have committed this error. Um, there are actually these deep currents in what I call new secularism that commit the same mistake, commit the same error. In this new secularism, uh, the body or the empirical or material self is separate from the spiritual or mental self. So certain strands of secularism uh, teach that your body, your material self, does not dictate who you are, that it's actually separate from who you truly are. And I call this a kind of new Gnosticism because this idea that a person could understand themselves apart from their biological reality, that wouldn't have even been intelligible 100 years ago. Like, no categories for that. So both certain Christian traditions and this, these sort of new secular movements commit the same error. Now, Jesus doesn't understand that reality. His world is a unified whole. His spiritual teaching cannot be divorced from his physical feeding. They cannot be separate. Why? Because he's looking at human beings, whole person. And Jesus wants them to be fully human as he made them. And what that means is, is to have a right relation with, rela- relationship with them and to be who he designed them to be, physical selves. So the Bible has a very holistic view of human beings. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Walker Percy. A friend of mine turned me on to him several years ago. But he writes a book called Lost in the Cosmos, and the subtitle is The Last Self-Help Book. And it's a satire of sorts. But in it, he asserts that we are lost because the modern self is dislocated. In other words, he's saying that we have separated our spiritual form from our physical form. And, at, and then we attempt to live and exist as these two separate entities jammed into one body, right? Now listen, sociologists, and I'm not talking about just Christian sociologists, but sociologists of all sorts, all varieties, they're saying, man, the data is coming in. Let me give you one example of what they're finding on the hookup culture, the dangers of hookup culture. And that's this idea that we can have a flippant, intimate encounter without any consequences. In other words, a meaningful physical act without corresponding emotional security in the form of faithful love or loyalty. Everyone is saying, that is a bad idea to separate those two things. Everyone, every sociologist saying, that is a bad idea. We're already seeing the implications. Jesus understands who we are and sees us as whole persons. And so he he interacts with the crowd in their humanity, who is hungry. And so he's not doing a miracle in order to show them power. He's compassionately feeding them. He cares about their hunger, their bellies. He feeds them. He, He cares about their bellies and their hearts. And he sees those in unity, you see. You know, I have the uh, privilege, I have the privilege of serving on a, a nonprofit board. It's called Hunger Corps. It's a tremendous organization. These guys serve in Puerto Rico. Um, they are, they're, they're in many places, but one of their primary fa- focuses is in this community called Sector La Hormiga, which is like a squatter community. 
And what they're doing there in the community is um, construction and skills development and microloans and legal advocacy. Now, if you were to um, spend time in Laudermiga, and I hope you do one time, I might take a group out there sometime, um, you'll meet the workers uh, and the foremen, and they wear these black shirts. On the front, you see a word hunger with like a line striking through it. And on the back, there's like their motto, and it says, porque orar no es suficiente, which means, I'm just kidding, because it, what it means is um, because praying is not enough. That's why they're there. They're a Christian organization, and they're like, because praying is not enough. Now, listen carefully, everyone. Dial it in here, because I don't want y'all tweeting about me. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that prayer is not effective or that God does not work through our prayers. Expectant, fervent prayers are important, and that is what Christians should be about, and so we do. But we have a tendency to speak and not to act. There's a pastor, his name's Duke Kwan, up in the Northeast. He says, the problem is not prayer. It, the problem is when prayer is used as public performance or public theater as a cover for inaction. So we're not cynical about prayer. I mean, we're going to pray until our knees are bloody and we're going to feed their bellies because they're whole persons, right? Jesus sees us as whole persons and we should see the world that way too. Physical needs matter to God, and you and I get to participate it. And this is, there's this really important detail in this passage that I don't want you to miss. I didn't notice it until someone brought it to my attention. The disciples are actually the ones executing the miracle. This is wild. They're watching the bread multiply in their hands as they distribute it. See, look, Jesus asks, hey, what do you have? They're like, five loaves, two fish. They bring it. He blesses it. And as the disciples are distributing it, it just keeps multiplying. Like they break off a piece and then there's more. Like it's actually happening in their hands. Like this is such a beautiful picture of our design and purpose, of living out the kingdom of God. We are called to bring the generous provision of God to the people who are lost and hungry. And it keeps multiplying in our hands. We're just mediating God's provision. The disciples had these, this powerful marching orders to act it, act it out. All right, let me, let me quickly conclude with uh, a question. Why is it that Jesus starts with teaching and then concludes with the bread? If you remember earlier in Mark, we studied uh, the, the story of the healing of the paralytic right? The friends lower him down on the pulley system right in front of Jesus. And he says, um, first words, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, pick up your mat and walk, right? So both sins are forgiven and walk. Why? Well, the healing authenticates his words, right? The healing authenticates Christ's words. So in our case, the provision of the bread authenticates Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. Okay, are y'all seeing this? Why is this so important? Because one day they're going to ask, how do I know? How do I know that this shepherd cares for me? And on that day when they ask that question, the answer will be easy. Look at what the Lord is willing and able to do. 
Look at how he feeds them with a deep feeding, a whole feeding. But this is just the beginning, you guys. This was just the beginning of what Jesus was willing and able to do. Check out this detail. We learned from verse 31 and 32 that the disciples and the masses were in a desolate place, right? We saw that. That's not uncommon for the region of Palestine. Most of the year, a fair part of it's quite dry. But then in verse 39, John Mark includes a small detail, and he says, they sat down in green grass. You notice that? Like, why mention that? Like, why mention that there's green grass? Why the extra detail? With that one detail, we know that it must be spring. Because only during the spring do the rains come and, give, and, and do these dry portions give way to green grass. And what springtime means is the Passover. The Passover is the feast when Jews come from all over to, to Jerusalem to remember God's rescue and his salvation. And it's in that context, that sort of Passover context, Jesus gives us a sneak peek of what he is willing and able to do. In verse 40, Mark tells us that Christ took the bread. He looked up into heaven. He blessed it. And he broke the loaves. Y'all, what does that sound like? What does that sound like? That's right. That's the meal, the institution of the Lord's meal, where, where he's going to say, hey, this body, this bread is my body, which would be broken, and my blood would be poured out to come and save our whole selves. And he did. Ezekiel 34 was fulfilled. God became the shepherd, you guys. And he laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus wasn't just empathetic. His compassion was wedded to his actions. And he hung on a cross. May you believe these words. Amen. Amen.